All right, today we're gonna to talk about some of our original investment commentary and pieces of research that we found most interesting for the week of January 15th, 2021. And to start, I'm gonna just quickly walk through one of the articles that I wrote. Um, the title of that piece was Considerations for Investors Seeking High Dividend Paying Stocks. And actually, Jack, we just recently finished doing um, our Excess Returns podcast talking about you know, a few of these issues. I think this article sort of gave us the idea to kind of dive into dividends um, a little bit more. But what my article was basically highlighting was how over how dividends are very important for a lot of investors and a lot of investors seek out high dividend paying companies. But when you look at the yield on dividends over time, they have been uh, falling steadily, particularly since like the 1980s. The average yield for stocks um, over the last 100 years is about has been about 4% right now. The yield on the S&P 500 is about 1.6%. So uh, yield has certainly come down. And then I sort of talked about how the decision to pay a dividend is actually a decision made by the company. These aren't like automatic payments necessarily that just all companies pay. It's really a capital allocation decision. And a company can decide to pay dividends. They can decide to buy back stock. They can decide to pay down debt. Um, or they could decide just to retain earnings. Um, but one of the trends that has, and there's a chart in my article that where I highlight this, the, the, the trend, there's been an upward trend in terms of buybacks and a downward trend in terms of uh, dividend payments. So a lot more companies for a lot of reasons are actually buying back a lot more of their stock. And actually in 2017, I believe that line crossed. So you, we've been on a trajectory where buybacks or the amount spent on buybacks is now greater than the amount paid out in dividends, um, which a lot of investors may not even know. And then I sort of um, highlighted or found a S&P Global report. And this is similar to what we talked about um, in the podcast when we looked at some of O'Shaughnessy's data from What Works on Wall Street. But this S&P Global report basically was tracking like the S&P high yield dividend portfolio the S&P 500 buyback index, the S&P 500 shareholder yield portfolio, and then they compared those portfolios to the S&P 500 index and the S&P equal weight index. And basically what they showed was, well, the high dividend portfolio actually beat the S&P 500 and the index, which is a market cap weighted index and the equal weighted index, um, the uh, buyback index and the shareholder yield portfolio, which incorporate um, buybacks you know, actually beat the high dividend paying portfolio. And then to wrap it up, I sort of talked about this idea of a synthetic dividend, which is basically just instead of um, generating income from yield, you're basically, another way you can do it is you can basically sell parts of the portfolio to generate that income over time. So that was sort of the, a quick summary of the article I wrote. But like I said, like we talked about this a lot more extensively, I think, in the Excess Returns podcast. Yeah, you know, I think the general idea is investors tend to overemphasize dividends and investors tend to want to buy high yielding stocks more than maybe they should. And when you take a step back and you say, why am I buying these high yielding stocks? What are the things I'm trying to accomplish? 
and can I maybe accomplish those in a different way, you end up with maybe a different way to build a portfolio, or you end up with something like a synthetic dividend where maybe I can generate the dividend and I don't have to worry about buying high yielding stocks. So we talked about that in the podcast and you know, you talked about shareholder yield in the article, which is a better way probably to look at the way companies can return capital to shareholders. Um, so yeah, we talked about both of those, but I think the general idea is maybe, maybe investors emphasize dividends a little more than they should. The other original piece of content we produced was our podcast on Peter Lynch, which um, was doing pretty good on, on YouTube. I mean, it was getting kind of some good views. I, I think a lot of investors, especially that follow Validia, are interested in the guru models and the strategies we track. So do you want to talk a little bit about what we discussed in that? Yeah, you know, Lynch is interesting because he's the hardest guru to track probably of, of the gurus we track. So if, if you look at the way Lynch actually managed money and you look at the automated version of Lynch, there's probably the biggest difference there. And, you know, we, we're using what's the strategy that's outlined in One Up on Wall Street. We're, we're using the exact fundamental criteria, but Lynch is somebody who did a lot of other things. You know, he was known for buy what you know, but there was a lot more to it than that. He wasn't just buying what you know. He was also buying what you know and coupling it with fundamentals. And also Lynch, you know, when AQR looked at Lynch, they found that he is probably the hardest guru to put into a certain pigeonhole in terms of the factors he was using. He was using a lot of different factors and factors even in general didn't explain a lot of his return. So we talk about that a little bit too and how, how tough Lynch is to figure out, but also some lessons investors can learn from Lynch. Yeah. Okay. That's, um, that's a good, interesting sort of set of thoughts on, on Lynch. Um, I think people will, will, will enjoy that podcast if they uh, get a chance to check it out. And what was um, the most interesting article that you sort of read this week on the blog? Um, the most interesting article I read was an article about intangible assets and value investing, because one of the biggest issues a lot of us in, that are value investors have been looking at recently is, are our value models broken because of intangible, ass intangible assets? So if I'm looking at the price to book of a stock and the, the book value doesn't include these intangible assets like brand and technology, you know, if you think about a company like Google, those are the majority of their value. They're not like, it's not a small thing we're missing. We're missing a huge part of it. And so the question is, are, are we missing something here by not including intangible assets in our models? And is that the major reason or one of the major reasons value has struggled in the past decade? And what they did in the article is they looked at other countries because one of the things about the United States right now is we have a lot of technology companies. We have a lot of companies with tons of intangible assets. But when you look at other company, you know, other countries around the world, they don't have that or they have a lot less of that. So what you would expect if that's the case is if intangibles is to blame here, you would expect value strategies to struggle more in the United States where there are a lot of these intangible assets and value strategies to struggle less in some of these, you know, mineral or, you know, resource rich countries where maybe they have, you know, different types of markets where intangibles are not as important. And what they found in the article is that's not the case. Um, value has struggled pretty much across the board in every country. Um, and so that might be a reason to think that maybe intangible assets are not as much to blame for values underperformance as many of us thought. So I wonder in those other countries though, value has struggled relative to growth. So there must be some growth like companies in those other countries that are attracting capital or, you know, one of the things, and I don't know the statistics behind this. I know, you know, there's a lot more, I think, foreign investment in U.S. companies. And I think the stock markets, and we know this because we have some partners in India and also South Africa that are giving investors, retail investors, the ability to actually invest in U.S. companies. So I wonder if this cross-border flow of capital 
somehow inter- plays into that that you know could be looked at in the future it's just interesting to think about yeah you know you're right there are there are less growth type companies in those other countries but there, there are growth type companies and this is something that's really difficult to figure out i mean when, when you get a period where something like value struggles for a long time everybody wants to come up with every explanation and, you know we've written some articles where we've looked at intangibles or what the fed is doing and there, there's arguments on both sides of all these things i mean there's certainly it's not fair or not reasonable to try to value google with, you know, without including its intangible assets, because, you know, what is Google without its intangible assets? It's a bunch of servers and some buildings. And, you know, there's no reason to value Google that way. But when you get down to the really cheap stocks, they have far less intangible assets. So you can argue, you know, make a stronger argument that down at the bottom of the barrel with the cheapest stocks, maybe intangible assets are, and that's where value strategies operate. Maybe intangible assets are not as big of an issue down there as they are, you know, trying to value Google or Amazon or something like that. Yeah, so I and I always love Jason Jason Zweig, who's a um, columnist for the Wall Street Journal. I mean, his articles are. I have a handful of guys that I try to read every one of their articles. Um, and Zweig writes the Intelligent Investor column for the Journal. I think it comes out. It's either Friday night or Saturday morning. Um, anyways, I always tend to catch it on the weekend. But he wrote an article, and I thought the headline for this was really catchy. I, you know, I don't think he's the headline writer. I think an editor did this. But he says, I'll take Tesla for $1, please. And so he kind of used that. That kind of grabs your interest. But what he was really talking about is fractional shares. Now, a lot of investors might be familiar with this, but some of you might not. Um, um, there's been sort of this um, development. And it's actually, investors have had the ability to buy fractional shares um, for a long time, but a lot of these major brokers, Fidelity, Charles Schwab, Interactive Brokers, I'd say in the last year, and it's kind of on the heels of what I think Robinhood sort of forced them to do, zero commissions and being able to buy sort of slices or pieces of stocks. So, you know, you don't need, it used to be, you know, if you wanted to buy a share of um, Google that trades at $200, you'd have to buy one share of Google for $200. And obviously the more expensive stocks get, um, if you have to buy one share, you know, the more money you have to put up. Um, I think Tesla is some, somewhere around, I don't know what, $700 or something. Obviously Berkshire Hathaway A shares are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, you know, buying one share of those is like sticker shock to some investors. But now through this, this fractional share um, development, you have the ability to buy you know, small slices of stock. So if you want to spend $10 and buy $10 worth of Tesla, which is, you know, less than whatever 1% of its per share value, you have the ability to do that. And different brokers have kind of implemented it in different ways. But what Zweig was talking about is there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, You can, you know, cost effectively build diversified portfolios with that. There's this whole trend in um, uh, direct indexing which is basically allowing someone to build an index. And you can do that through the use of fractional shares. Um, It's kind of, you know, democratizing, if you will, investing. And I think a lot of young investors um, are probably investing this way. And by the way, we, through our separate capital management firm, we trade our clients' accounts at Folio Investing, which is recently purchased by Goldman Sachs. And so Folio for... Uh, at least almost 20 years now has been developing and offering the ability to buy partial shares. And because we run these model portfolios, you know, if we want, if we want to run a 10 stock model portfolio and allocate 10% to each holding, you know, you can easily and efficiently do that at Folio. And the way that you're able to do it is through this fractional share um, buying and selling. 
However, um, like all things in life and investing, it doesn't come without risks. And I thought that, you know, the one point he brought up that um, is, I, I think, a potential downside. I think there's two, but the one he highlighted, which is this concept of nano monetization, which is what casinos and sport betting platforms use um, when they kind of break uh, a myriad of opportunities or an event into a myriad of opportunities for speculation. So if you think about it, you know, through this slicing and dicing of all these shares, it makes investing potentially, or it can make investing potentially more like a gaming sort of exercise and, 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 and which is much more of a spec speculative way of investing than let's say investing, um, you know, like you're, you, you want to invest because you want to have ownership in, um, the company that you're investing. And just to finish this before I let you comment on this, Jack, because I know you had some thoughts. There was there was a there was an article just in the Wall Street Journal today. I sent it to you. And it was kind of building on this this idea. And one of the things that I and it was really interesting. You really had to think about it, but it was like the point of the article was investors are investing based on all they see is like dollar signs now. Cause it's like you can put a hundred dollars to work. You can put a thousand dollars to work. It's not really caring so much about the investments anymore as much as it is like the dollars that you're sort of putting to work, if I'm saying that sort of correctly. Um, and what I was th sort of thinking about is like it is disconnecting from sort of the idea of, you know, when you invest in the stock market, you are buying an ownership interest effectively in these companies. You have you're entitled to a portion of the future cash flows and earnings that these companies are generating I think the more and more, and partially due to fractional shares, but partially due to dollar-based buying as well, where you can just say, you know, just buy $100 worth of this and not even think of, you know, it kind of gets away a little bit from sort of the investing, if you will. But at the same time, it's bringing in, um, you know, millions of new investors into the stock market, which I think is a good thing because over time you want to get started in the market young and you want to get started early. So I don't know, that was the thing um, that I, that was the article I found interesting this week. Yeah, you know, I would put fractional shares in the same bucket as zero commissions. You know, both of these things are sort of a double-edged sword. They, they make investing easier and cheaper for people, but when you make investing easier and cheaper for people, you're going to have a bunch of people buying individual stocks who maybe shouldn't. You're going to have people over-trading. You know, they're going to have people day-trading that shouldn't be day-trading. And when you couple that with sort of what's happened in the pandemic, you know, people had some, some extra time on their hands. The market's done nothing but up since then. You have a situation that could eventually be problematic. Um, and, and I do wonder if things like, you know, reduced commissions. And I do wonder if the net effect here may be more negative than we think. Because if we are encouraging trading and we are encouraging people to maybe take more risks than, than they should, you know, the, the net effect may not be as good as, as we hope it would be in, in the long run. You know, and like you mentioned in, in when you were talking, if, the, if investing becomes a casino where people don't care, don't even understand what it is they're buying, can't tell you anything about the companies they're buying, can't tell you anything about their fundamentals, you eventually end up with a problem because these stocks are eventually going to go down and these people are all just going to sell the stocks and they're going to lose money. And, you know, you want to understand, you want to have some idea whether you're buying index funds or whether you're buying individual stocks, you want to have some idea what your strategy is and you want to have some idea what you own. And this, this maybe is getting us a little bit away from that. Well, guys, we hope you find these weekly summary, uh, quick podcasts helpful and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you. If you'd like to keep up on the research, writing, and curation we're doing at Validia, please go to blog.validia.com to learn more and stay updated. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. Thanks so much.
hosts Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.